Dystopia tonight. This whole show could have been just me listing your credits, and then we could have ended. Yeah, well, the, I mean, they're a little confused. I, uh, the Glenn Campbell, I wrote the Summer Brothers Smothers show starring Glenn Campbell. That was his first show. Oh, okay, okay, I got you. So it's not, okay. Then, it wasn't... Then, he, then he got the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, but I moved on. I was doing right. other stuff. By that time. But you're but you're responsible for Glenn Campbell's whole career is what we're going to get down to tonight, right? Well, you know, <laughs> I was on that first writing staff that that put him on the air. That was me and John Hartford and Steve Martin and oh my god, Bob Einstein, Lorenzo Music, and uh, but which Murray, Murray Roman, McLean Stevenson. Oh my god! So when you so when you say Lorenzo Music, by the way, I didn't really. I mean, I I know most things about you know uh, comedy history and all that stuff. I that's the that's Carlton your doorman and the voice of Garfield right that Lorenzo Lorenzo music yeah, that's Lorenzo music yes I did not know that he started out as a comedy writer he started out as a performer he had a, there was an act called Jerry and Myrna music oh my God I did and not know that I saw them at the Hungry Eye in nineteen the sixties but then uh, then the, the, she quit to raise a family and he and he went uh, he. He and I uh, were working on the Glen Campbell, and then he and his another partner <clears throat> wrote. Oh no, yeah, no. Then we were working. Then we got picked up to write the Smothers show. Mm -hmm. So we were writers on the Smothers show. We were mostly responsible for the monologues. Oh, fantastic! And we wrote a monologue for Newhart, who was going to be a guest on the show. Mm -hmm. And the Newhart monologue was a big hit for Newhart. Wow! So he bought it from us to use in his act. Oh and my God! For the next 10, 20 years. So if you've seen Newhart in Las Vegas anytime in the eighties or the nineties, or even now, I don't know. I don't know if he's I have his there. albums. Uh, I don't know if he ever recorded it because that, that would have triggered another payment. But oh. uh, <laughs> but he paid us a good price just to use the sketch, and mm -hmm. uh, it was a monologue called "The Air Traffic Controller." Oh, I know that one. Okay, yeah, where, where he's on it. it, it you know, it, it's a switch on his phone. You know, his phone shtick. So it's right. on the phone. He's on. He's a, an air traffic controller talking to a, an airplane. Uh, oh my god! On his way in. That's fantastic. And so you, so I didn't. So comedians back then. So like Newhart wouldn't have a monologue prepared, or like those guys wouldn't have a monologue prepared. It was up to you guys to write the comedian's well, monologue. Well, no. Well, well, what happened is, you know, you know television is, uh, you know eats material. I mean, you, you know, you do it on television, you can't do it again. Sure. And, and uh, so, so you try not to do your, like the Smothers Brothers would resist using, because it took them, you know, 30 years to build their act and every time yeah. they did 12 minutes from their act on television, that was 12 minutes they couldn't do again on television. Yeah. Still do it in their act, but even then. So uh, we specialized in writing new material that sounded like old material. Lorenzo oh, and I awesome. could write the brothers in their own voices. We had, we had a knack for that. Right. So, so, the, uh, so we wrote their monologues. And, and, uh, the, and Newhart was going to be a guest on the show. And we had a long involved sketch that involved dancers and singers and, you know, uh, Pro, promo pro, a uh, uh, a, uh, a a optical number with you know dancing on the wing of an airplane like flying down to Rio, <laughs> and 
and the the production was going to be in those days you could do a hunk on a variety show from commercial to commercial which was like 12 or 13 minutes so you would do a sketch you know a musical number a dance number and then you tie it all together wow uh so we had been working on a piece for newhart when he was coming to the show uh, and gradually the dancers and the singers fell out we didn't have rehearsal time there was mm. other, other guests on the show so all we were left with with was the monologue for new art which he performed and you know did very well on and liked it so much he, like i say he bought it from us and that is that he established a relationship with lorenzo and lorenzo's other writing partner a guy named dave davis wow. so they pitched him on the bob newhart show and the rest was history. They got Holy to produce yeah. the new art show, and then and uh, and uh, Lorenzo was very was kind of gracious. By they did a, a, a TV Guide article about, mm -hmm. about how he got the show, and he wrote in to correct him. He says, "No, no, there was another guy in the room who wrote that new art monologue with me, and you know his name was Carl Gottlieb, and blah blah blah." So. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he shared the credit, but he didn't share the royalties. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is classic classic comedian writing. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's awesome though. So was there ever anybody on the show that you were writing for that you thought just butchered what you did and like like because I feel like I've written for uh, uh you know a few things before too and like I've tried to I stopped watching who I was writing for sometimes on stuff because if they didn't tell it exactly right or like they didn't get to the joke, depending on what kind of show it was, yeah, it would drive the, me crazy. The hardest thing and it's the most painful thing for a writer is uh, you say, they, they trust the material, just read it. You don't have mm -hmm. to, because even the Smothers Brothers were guilty of this and they were as, as savvy as anybody, but the performer's instinct is to make it your own, you know, Put right. yourself into the material. So when it's really well written and it's already in your voice, which I pride myself on doing, I can write mm -hmm. in someone else's voice. You don't need to fuck around and change it, change right. the word. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, uh, but but performers being performers, it's very hard for them not to do that. So yeah, we're we're and then so you sit there and. And then they come off stage and say, "Well, that didn't work very well." And I said, "Yeah, it would have worked very well if you, if I can just read it off the card." So it was written. <laughs> but no, I know. But no, you had to improvise, you know. So. Yeah, that's the, that's the most frustrating part too. And there's been times where, like, and I'm have you like I, I don't know if you're allowed to do this in the writers' rooms and stuff like that, you know, when you were doing it back then. But like, I I know I've kept jokes. Like I'll be writing for somebody or whatever, and I'm like, "Oh, this is too fucking good. I'm not." I'm not going to part with this one. And then you start rewriting like something else along the way. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm not going to wear glasses because they just reflect the TV, the screen. Uh, <laughs> you look great either way. Glasses, no thank, glasses. Thank you. I had a haircut recently. I, you know, try, try to stay well groomed even though right. I'm confined indoors. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> I feel like that's a knock against me because my hair has been grown. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've seen there's a, there's a, a friend of mine who I who I, I see on Zoom every every couple of weeks, mm -hmm. and he hasn't had a haircut in you know six yeah. months, and he looks like a crazy old lady. <laughs> hair That's amazing. That's what oh, I'm hoping. Oh, I'm hoping. A bun, you know? 
I'm going you know, for a Mary Tyler Moore thing. Yeah, yeah. But you know, <laughs> yours looks fine. You're, you know, you're a long-haired guy. That's all there is to it. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Nobody knows I'm, any I'm, different. I'm obviously a short-haired or no-haired guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, we got a friend that says Courtney said looking oh, sharp oh, both. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy, man. I feel like this is this is like. Uh, this is a good indication to people outside of the world that I've been taking, that I've been being safe. I'm like, as long as I keep letting my hair go, I'm going to be like, that young man has not been outside. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has not seen a, a, a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm being safe. Um, so that's, so that was your, um, it's like, I was, who gave you your first writing job? Was it the smother? Was that it? Or did you have like some other work behind that? Well, I went to college and with a, I went to Syracuse University right. before the Annenberg School of Communications. They, they had a very good journalism school. Okay. It was just called J School. Mm -hmm. But I got a dual major in journalism and uh, theater arts, you know, so right. and journalism. And the <clears throat> one decision, I, and, I, and I had to graduate mid-year. I would have been class of 59. But because I transferred to Syracuse, I lost some credits, and I had mm -hmm. to spend the last semester making up like nine credits. <clears throat> so I didn't graduate until January of 60. And of course, in January in Syracuse, there's no ceremony. There's no caps and gowns. There's no walking right. down the aisle. It's just you know, frozen cold and towering drifts and the wind blowing down over Lake Erie across Buffalo. and. <laughs> 12 foot, 12 foot snow drift. So I got out of, you know, one day in mid January, I'm all of a sudden I'm, I'm not in college anymore. I don't have to write a paper. I don't have any assignments to I'm out in the real world. I, you know, I got to give up my dorm room. I got to, you know, it's over. Yeah. And, uh, it's a time for you kind of a bit of introspection, you know, okay, now what? I'm 21 years old. I'm going to lose my draft deferment. I'm probably going to wind up spending time in the army sometime soon. Mm -hmm. So the decision I made was I am only going to work in show business. I'm not going to be a cab driver or a carpenter or a merchant seaman or any of those, you know, wow. dust jacket jobs. I'm going to only work right. in show business if I and whether I whatever I get paid. And in those days I had technical skills. I, I could build scenery and I was a I was a very good stage manager and a press agent, publicist, which wow. I cover stock. So I, I had these skills, and I was able to kind of make a living. You know, sometimes I would get you know twenty five bucks a week and meals for, mm -hmm. for MCing in a Greenwich Village coffee house and hanging the lights and doing the sound. Wow, you know, being a jack of all trades, but mm -hmm. it was it was it was useful. I I met some. Some of my oldest friends in show business go back to that winter of 1960 in New York, Greenwich Village. Uh, Fred Willard was working with his partner. Vic oh, Gregory. man, no way. That's awesome. Fred Willard. Um, and the premise was just across the street. And that was, uh, um, I think, Buck Henry and George Siegel. Wow. Uh, were improvising. Then Dick Libertini was in an act called Stewed Prunes. Uh, <laughs> Cafe Wa, Peter, Paul, and Mary were just getting together. Cafe Wa. Holy shit. So it was a very exciting time to be in Greenwich Village. Anyway, yeah. so, um, uh, so, I was, so I was working you know, as a stage manager. Then I went to work. Then I got drafted. 
Okay. I went into the army. I came out of the army in 63. And by that time, my friends had opened the committee in San Francisco and they, they needed a stage manager. So mm -hmm. I went to San Francisco as a stage manager with the committee <laughs> and occasionally would appear on stage in the character of stage manager and get a few right. laughs. And uh, then, uh, and then I, I took one job after another. But my first real money for writing uh, in 65, I left the committee for a season and went to work in New York for a Broadway producer named Arthur Cantor. <clears throat> and uh, he, uh, um, and while I was there, I had sent a query letter, mm -hmm. just like they taught us in journalism school. Oh, I nice. Sent, I sent a cold call, you know, a cold letter to uh, Esquire mm -hmm. magazine. And one day I get a phone call from a soft-spoken Southern literary gentleman. This is Mr. Gottlieb. This is Harold Hayes over at Esquire. And he was a you know, legendary editor of Esquire magazine. Yeah. And they hired me to write my little article. It's a, a related piece. And they paid me $519.65. $519.65. Wow. That was the first money I ever made. And, and it was like you know, deceptively simple. I said, you know, oh, it's like they taught us in school. You write a letter. You send it. They read the letter. <laughs> they, they, they buy the article. What's so hard about that? Holy shit. So I took my 500 bucks and I bought a motorcycle. I bought a, <laughs> a Triumph Chopper. As you do. Chopper, as one yeah. does. Right. And I bought a Triumph Chopper. And then the committee wanted me back as an actor this time. Wow. So I loaded my motorcycle onto a trailer and all with my worldly possessions and drove across country to San Francisco and went to work as an actor with another former stage manager named Howard Hessman. We, that's the same the uh, the career track at the committee was you work as a stage manager, you graduate to the acting company, and then mm -hmm. you know and you go on from there. Right. Uh, that happened to me, Howard Hespin, a guy named Jim Crana, uh, uh, Gary Austin, who founded the Groundlings, began as a committee stage manager. Wow. Uh, we have lo a long history of uh, of that. So anyway, so we you know. And, when I was in the committee as an actor, you know, we were a hit, and then we went to L.A., and we were a hit in L.A., and one thing led to another. And in L.A., in LA various casting directors saw us, and you know, we didn't, we weren't a regional theater anymore. We were, you know, we had a little bit of national status. That's when I got cast in the movie of Mesh. In okay. 68, well, so, so were you still writing for Esquire though when you were doing these acting things well, in the did, committee, or did you leave that behind? That was a one-off, you know. It was just an article and a service. That's piece. incredible. Yeah. So you just did a one-off, got five hundred bucks, bought a motorcycle, pieced out, and then automatically went into acting in the committee. Yeah. Oh my God, that's incredible. Uh, yeah. Well, it's you know. Somebody said hell yeah. My, my whole life, like one, you know, one thing led to another. You know, I. Wow. There was a we. Had, I had an agent in L.A. Mm. who was one of the first guys who had the idea for packaging clients together. Oh, and, and that guy's name was Mike Metavoy, and he, he was an agent at CAA. Wow. And he put me together with another client of his name, Steven Spielberg, who was the new kid in town. Oh, I, I'm I sorry, acted, pronounce that again? I don't think I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so I acted in a couple of Steven Spielberg television movies. You know, before, oh, wow. Uh, before Jaws. And we, we, we went out together to try to sell stuff. 
and we could never sell anything because the deal was Stephen would be locked in to direct, and nobody would could be would commit to that. Wow! So we never, so we never sold anything. Uh, but in the meantime, he he did Duel, and then he did Sugarland Express, and then and then he got Jaws, and he involved me in that. Mm -hmm. That was another you know right place, right time. Right. And, and who knew? No, nobody. Yeah, and Duel was like a uh, almost like was that like the um, kind of like a moment? It was a ninety-minute television movie. Hey, Universal used to do these ninety-minute movies for television. Yeah, I've seen it. They would be uh, backdoor pilots. Right. It's funny. There was a, a Lifetime Achievement Award for Spielberg once, and uh, Dennis Weaver spoke. Oh wow! And he was, uh, and he had, uh, he had been in in uh, in Duel. He, he was mm -hmm. the uh, protagonist in Duel. Yeah. And he said, "I was. Pro I'm probably the last person who ever got to approve Steven Spielberg as a director." <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was a star. He, had, he was coming off of McLeod. And yeah. So he was a star, and Stephen was this kid who was going to do this TV movie. Mm -hmm. Stephen had distinguished himself. He did the pilot for uh, Columbo. Oh, okay. He, he, did the, he shot the first Columbo. And then I didn't know that. Nothing to do with it ever again. But in the meantime, he had gotten this contract at Universal to be a director and was doing one thing after another. And wow. And then he became Steven Spielberg. And I, that's, I happened to be there, so we did that stuff together. That's incredible. Because Duel was like, uh, when I, I remember when I was a kid and I saw Duel, it, and I saw, obviously, saw, I saw Jaws first because I'd never, they didn't really play Duel that often, but I knew it was on TV or, or whatever it was, and I looked it up and it was Spielberg. And it was kind of reminiscent, you know, it reminds me of Jaws a little bit. That, that truck is oh, yeah, like yeah. Jaws. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they and, both make the same sound when they die. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, which is like a nice little wink if you're like paying attention, which is so great. That was like before. Was that the first time anybody put an Easter egg in a movie? Do you think like with like a little nod to their prior film? I don't know. I think you know uh, some people did it all the time. I remember I was what, what was I watching? Uh, Dog Day Afternoon or something. Mm -hmm. It's a good there, one. Yeah, there, there's a. Uh, was it? No, no. I, it was. Uh, it was uh, Lawrence Olivier. It was about diamonds. Okay. Anyway, they, no, the, the uh, directors always, you know, they they they'll stick something in every every now and then. There's a if you I, I'm sure if you go on the internet and start looking up Easter eggs, you'll find all kinds of surprises. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, it's no, it's you, amazing. You know, you'll see. Like there'll be a Western Street, and like the blacksmith shop will be named after the produ associate producer or something. You'll recognize mm -hmm. the name of something because you know since they're creating right. all of it, they'll, they, they can make it anything you want. So well, in this, so in this timeline of your career, as far as Spielberg, what were you? Were you at, so you did the Bob Newhart show? You wrote for the Bob Newhart show for a little bit, right? I wrote. I George Yannick and I. I wrote I wrote an episode together. Okay, you wrote an episode together, and then from there, uh, the uh, where like does the Odd Couple come in later, or does it come in before? Like uh, Odd Couple, let's see. Uh, I I got the Odd Couple in seventy three, I think. Okay. Three. I was story editor on the Odd Couple. 
Because wow. I quit the odd couple to do Jaws. I mean, that was okay. Uh, that's what I was wondering because in the in the when I was trying to do a little research on that, it's a little fuzzy on like where yeah, you were at that time. I was, you know, I was employed on the regularly employed on the odd couple as a story. Okay. And uh, I got a phone call on a Sunday morning from Stephen. He said, "I showed you. I, uh, he had sent me the script for Jaws mm -hmm. with a note on the cover saying, eviscerate it." <laughs> so I wrote a long memo about what I thought of the script because right. those days we did those kind of things. Sure. So I wrote a long single space memo, which I still have. Ooh. And in the memo, I made a great prediction and a great mistake. Oh. But mistake first, I said, Does the girl have to get killed just because she has sex? That's such a you know, <laughs> That's such a horror movie cliche, you know. Right. A young person has sex and then they die. You know, that's right. It's some sort of primitive morality play. Yeah. yeah. So, does she have to die? Well, little did I know that Stephen would shoot Chrissy's death the way he did, which is you know <laughs> one of the great first ten minutes of film in yeah history. <clears throat> so that was my mistake. What I did say, I said, you know, if we do our jobs right talking about director-writer combination, mm -hmm. people will feel about swimming in the ocean the way they feel, felt about taking a shower after Psycho. Me, yes, you but, did your um, job. For the next 45 years, whenever I meet someone and I tell them I worked on Jaws, the first thing they say is, you know, when I saw that movie, I didn't go in the water, I didn't go in the lake, I didn't go in a bathtub, I didn't go in the toilet. Mm -hmm. Everybody, had this, and I have to nod and smile, say, yes, I know. It's just... <laughs> It's very effective. Yeah, you know, they're sharing something that's personal to them, and I've, I've heard, I've heard it before, but that's you know. That's, yeah, and now you're doing PSAs to get people to go into the water this day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> going to college campuses. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a. I remember seeing it when I was a kid, and I was terrified. I mean, it was it was great because, um, it's such a it's a funny movie, like too, like it's the lines are great, it's subtly funny, but it also scares the ever loving shit out of you. Cause they're real characters. So the lines are delivered very, you know, uh, I didn't go, somebody said no, I didn't go in the no, toilet. No, yeah. No, <laughs> no, it, 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 it's true. I mean, every, everybody had their own reaction to it and mm -hmm. they, everybody has shared that ever since. And uh, at the time, nobody knew. I mean, we, yeah. we didn't think it would be that impressive, but as, as it turns out, it was. Did you so like compared to movies you'd done after that and stuff that you had worked on and even stuff that's going on today? Do you feel that it helps a film like that to work under the restrictions that you had at the time? Because you guys were you were like what over um uh, uh you went over time shooting that movie. Yeah. Um, the shark wasn't working. You know you had to worry about the day you were you were you know there was no CGI, so you had to worry about uh, like all those stuff. But it made a beautifully perfect film. And ever, I mean, it's arguably like just still stands as one of the best films. Yeah, and you know, I, 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 to this day, I mean, you know, I, I on, on your show and other shows and, and just online chat rooms, there's like 10 Jaws groups. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a few hundred thousand or maybe a million followers. Yeah. And they, All they arguing were, about. Oh, yeah. They, they dissected the film 100 Yeah. And, and it's funny, every six months, the same question comes up and everybody jumps on the new guy and says, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I stumbled into one where somebody was arguing about whether Pippet should have died. And they were like, 
yeah, like, no, which is they, hilarious. They study, they study the film frame by frame. I, I've never watched it with that precision. Uh, <laughs> at the time, you have to remember, at the time, it was a studio picture in the classic sense that it was developed by Universal. It had a Universal crew, you know, mm -hmm. the camera department, the casting director, uh, the technical department were all Universal employees. Right. Was, and um, Zanuck and Brown were under contract to Universal. Stephen was under contract to Universal. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a really conventional studio film that kind of got out of control in terms of budget and time. But we had an executive producer at the time named Bill Gilmore who believed in Stephen and the project and was on the set and on, on location with us. And he... He saw the value of not pulling because there was at one point the suits came to Martha's Vineyard with the intention of Ooh. analyzing what was wrong because we were over budget and over time. Right. And if necessary, pulling the plug, bring everybody back to Hollywood, finish the film on the back lot for a, for a dollar and a half, and then just put it out and trying to make back the investment. Wow. Uh, but wiser heads prevailed, and Bill Gilmore is the hero. Because in those days, you know, budgets were kept manually with the adding machine and tape. Mm -hmm. and every budget had, you know, three columns, you know, budgeted cost, cost to date, cost, okay. to, cost to complete. Mm -hmm. And Bill Gilmer, in anticipation of the executives arriving, had run the numbers the night before. And they had jumped precipitously from being you know, 11 days over and $6 million over. We were suddenly 26 days over and $15 million over. Uh, right. Great numbers. And Bill Gilmore took it on himself to leave that budget with the numbers locked in his desk drawer, and he did not share it with the suits. He showed them the previous week's run rundown, and they said, well, all right, might as well finish. You know, you're so close. Yeah, that's genius. And, and he was risking his job. He could have gotten fired. You know, right. But he believed out. in the film and he believed in you guys and what you were doing. Yep. yep. That's incredible. So who did you hate on that set? No, I'm just kidding. I don't have to ask. <laughs> we want some Jaws dirt. Um, no, that's cool. Like, so was there, I know I'd heard something that you were, you were talking about. Um, you, you and Steven would sit down like afterward to figure out what wasn't working, what was working and kind of rewrite things. Was there ever a point in time where like, a line just wasn't working in a scene and you had to come out and rewrite it and rework it with the actors or did it, did it mostly go as smoothly as possible when you guys were on set? No, no, it was, it was all over the place. First of all, we had a, with the exception of, you know, half a dozen professional actors, uh, the whole company were, were either amateurs or locals. You know, we were very lucky that Lee, Amazing. Fierro, that Lee Fierro was a local. I mean, she was a, she was a trained actress and she ran the little theater on the vineyard. And right. She did, she did Mrs. Kintner. Yeah. But you know, a lot of the other people were just people. You know, I mean, Polly. If you listen to Polly, oh. that, that's actually uh, what I call uh, it, it, it's 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 naive acting. It's like naive. Have you ever seen naive art, like Grandma? Yes. Lopez? People who don't, you know, they're not trained artists, but they 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 write they they paint. Yeah. Well, Polly is a naive actress. She's you know, she, she's just saying the words, 
and you can mm-hmm. tell that she's not an actor. Right. But she looks the part so incredibly, and you know Spielberg is a, and Shari Rose were geniuses at casting. Right. So, uh, you you completely buy her. Yeah. As, as who she is. And, and person, you know. Yeah, uh, and Brody plays off of her so well. Anyway, yeah. you know what I mean in that one scene, and it's like, and she delivers that like, I, like, my, like it's one of my mom's favorite movies. And every summer we we get together, we rewatch it or whatever. But when she says that they're karateing, like it's hilarious. Like it's a funny line. She delivers it really well, and he's just ignoring her, typing away, you know. And boom, scene's over. It's beautiful. Yeah. So so, uh, but the the whole shoot was a series of these you know happy accidents where we got lucky or steven was and, and sherry were, mm-hmm. were uh, made the right choices with with supporting players and uh we we got through it it was one of those things where you know you reminds me of a cartoon i saw once in the new yorker of a bunch of crow of a bunch of druids looking at a brand new stonehenge it's mm-hmm. just been finished. You know, not, none of the stones have fallen down. It's complete. Right. And one of the druids is saying to the other, just, well, we did it, but don't ask me how. <laughs> That's fantastic. And there's a, there's everybody's fate. I mean, does everybody have a favorite on the set that was a local? That was because mine is Ben Gardner. And I've, oh, that he, line. He was, he was a wonderfully colorful character. Yeah. Craig Kingsbury. Yeah. He was amazing, and that line that he delivers, which I'm sure you've heard a million times over, but when he's on the boat and he just goes, wait till we get them silly bastards down in that rock pile, boy, it'll be some fun. They'll wish their father. That's just Craig ad-libbing, you know, in yeah. character. Which and is incredible because it's hilarious. Yeah, I remember when Steve and Sherry introduced me to Craig. Mm-hmm. Steven said, you know, make notes when this guy talks. He's got a really colorful turn of phrase. Right. So a lot of his dialogue was stuff that he said that I just kind of wrote down and put in the script. Fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, and it all worked out. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Craig, Did, Craig, Craig was, was one of wonderful guy. Right. And was, so, uh, one of the things that I'd read, I think it was in, I think it was in your book too, is that Richard Dreyfus was nervous about a performance prior to when he took on Jaws. Like he had just done, um, he had just done um, a Canadian movie that called The Apprenticeship of Diddy Kravitz. Yeah, Diddy Kravitz. And he said it was the first time he'd seen himself on screen and was like, mm, I better fucking get another acting job. Toot sweet. Uh, and so was that like, was there any kind of, did you guys notice that on the set that he was like, oh, I no, hope no, they no. don't it, see it? it was, I mean, he. Uh, I knew Richard from, you know, when he was just out of high school. He and Rob Reiner had a little improvisational theater company. Oh, wow. That was inspired by the committee. Okay. It was called The Session. And it was <laughs> Rob Reiner, Richard Dreyfus, an actor named David Arkin, who was in MASH, um, uh, a wonderful actress named uh, Marge Doucet, who made a good career in soap operas afterwards, right. uh, a, a buxom little starlet named uh, Bobby Shaw, who was the model for <laughs> Little Annie Fanny. Wow. She looked like Little Annie Fanny. Yeah, yeah. And who else was uh, there? Might have been a one other person. Anyways, it was a standard little improv company of four four guys, two girls. Mm-hmm. So I knew Richard since like nineteen or twenty in high school, right? and and uh, uh, 
when I got to, uh, uh, when Stephen and I hooked up and I got hired to do Jaws, I quit on one day's notice. I quit the odd couple and got on a plane with Stephen to Boston and mm -hmm. he started casting extras and I started rewriting the script. Nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, three weeks to go. And wow. with no no idea of what exactly we were doing, except right. we had we had, a, we had a whole script in mind, and mm -hmm. with with the uh, uh, enthusiasm and of of youth, we just said, well, well, we'll just tear it up and start again, you know. And, and, and we did. <laughs> and and I was writing, you know, some days I was writing a week or two ahead of the schedule. Other days I was writing the night before scenes got shot. And then I'd be out on the set as an actor, and I could work with the with the other actors on the set, you know, making suggestions, mm -hmm. listening. And if I wasn't on the set, I was back at the log cabin. I shared a house with Spielberg, and right. uh, it, it was it, it's the, in many ways it's the best creative experience of my life because yeah. it was so pressured and. And the best thing about writing one day before shooting is nobody's going to rewrite you. Right. <laughs> right. So all your stuff makes it. They're like, whatever yeah, it is. Anything you give them on paper, at yeah. least it's distributed to the cast. If they say it right or not, you know, that's that's up to them. Richard could never say Carcaridon Carcarius. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he fly, we, we had to loop that afterwards. It's, 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 really? Yeah, we put those words in his mouth. He, wow. He never, right? he never got it right on the set. Oh my God, that's incredible! I didn't know that. No, and I can't no. imagine there was a lot of time for shenanigans with you and Spielberg living together. Did you even get to enjoy that, or was it all no. just like, you know, <laughs> you're like, no. no, not no long night conversations, just bad no, no. work? I mean, Stephen was obsessed with the next day's work. Yeah, uh, I was obsessed with the next day's pages. Werner mm -hmm. was obsessed that we not lose track of anything and forget to write material, or that we would cut stuff that would be needed later. So right. Verna was there with us all the time. And she was cutting right along, right behind Stephen. She was just cutting as the footage came in. Uh, so it was a very, you know, very and, and because we shared the house, Stephen had learned on Sugarland Express, his first feature. Right. And a lot of time is wasted at the end of the shooting day. Your company, you know, everybody wants to take a shower, get dressed, you know, where are we going for dinner? Are we going to eat right. at the hotel or are we going to go out for dinner? So he said, I rented a house with a housekeeper and a cook, so we don't have to waste all that time. We can go straight from dailies to dinner to sleep and get up in the morning and do the next day's work. And somebody had asked, was it more freeing creating during that time? Courtney, court we. Well, it was it was uh it was freeing in that there was no no nobody was second guessing. You know, no mm -hmm. no nobody would say, Oh, you know, you can do this better. It, it, right. What they what they got was what they got. Luckily, Stephen and I are perfectionists, and you know we we tried we tried to get it right the first time because we knew there wouldn't be a second time. Right. And sometimes we got it right, sometimes we missed, but for the most part, it came out right. Yeah, I mean the whole it's crazy the amount of pressure that you guys were under. How every how well everything came out. Like even the, so there's like there's like subtle humor in that. And I'm sure that comes from your years of, you know, doing comedy writing and stuff. And I'm going to try to play one clip that I just think is I bet you no one I, I don't I bet you nobody's ever been like this scene, but I'm going to play it 
and uh, hopefully uh, you'll understand what I'm talking okay. about here. We've got some roadblock signs outside. Now you you, you got to get somebody to help us. Yeah, get some get those roadblock signs out on the highway because we've got more people down here than we can handle. Yeah. So uh, did that play with the sound too or no? Yeah, it did. It did. That so that is like ice every time. Like my family and I watched that film, that bad part. That's hilarious. That he just grabs some rocks, throws at the window, and his deputy is just like, "Hey, yeah. <laughs> like we." It's that stuff that makes Jaws like so like entertaining too. And so, like, is is that stuff that you guys improvise? Did they get to do a lot of improvise, you know, on the set, or was that all written and tight into the film? No, scripted? no, that was just they found that on the set. They did. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That, that's what I was. I mean, like you know, a lot of films like they always talk about whether people got to improvise and stuff like that. But I wasn't sure with under the time strains because the the line "We need a bigger boat" was improvised by Roy Scheider, right? Well, you know, I that, I said that for years, and then there's some some fan sent me a documentary, right? Where Roy says that was in the script. Really, so I never know to take credit for it or not. I I have always kind of maintained that it jumped. It was. Like, it came out of the moment, right? And and you know, and it worked so well, it became a, you know, a, yeah, a most loved line. It's like it's it's absolutely iconic. And so, was there any kind of like I know I I'm sure like again like you've talked about this tons of times before, but Robert Shaw is notoriously they didn't get along with Richard Dreyfus, but. Everything I've watched about that kind of interaction between the two, Richard seems to be oddly fond of Robert Shaw. Is it do you think, like, is it really that? Was it really that bad on the set, or no, or was no, it like they were both serious actors? Richard mm -hmm. had been acting since high school. Shaw, besides being a gifted actor, was a novelist and a screenwriter. He had won a Pulitzer Prize for The Man in the Glass Booth. Right, you know, he was a very accomplished guy. Uh, sadly, he had a drinking problem, but but uh, uh, you know that happens. Right. Uh, but but uh, uh, and and their characters were at odds, so they'd be you know as friendly as any cast member. Well, they were leads and they played opposite each other, but so they spent a lot of time together. But. Mm -hmm. but uh, um, they weren't, you know, actively hostile, but as they would get towards to the set, as mm -hmm. they would get into character, they would get into the antagonistic part of their relationship. <laughs> so by the time the cameras were rolling, they were, you know, snappish with each okay. other. Okay. You know, genuinely so in a way that comes out on the screen. Right. So when, I, when I wrote lines like don't you know don't give me that working class hero shit uh, right. you know, that was what i know of richard and his uh, you know his uh socialist background mm -hmm. and uh and and shaw you know being the guy he was so, so it, 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 it it we were lucky in that film that almost everything served the script which is right what you want to happen you want even the incidentals to resonate with the rest of the script and with the rest of the actors so uh the, you know the actors who are 
playing the townspeople who killed the shark. You know that great mm -hmm. story called a what? You know, kind yeah. of guy. It's all kind of ad lib, but at the same time, it's it's ad lib with direction. Um, okay. Most actors think that ad lib just means adding lines, you know, saying more stuff so you have more right. screen time. But a if a if if a writer has mm -hmm. done her job and created a fully fleshed out character with a backstory that you can imagine, mm -hmm. then the actor will ad lib in character. They'll say things that you might have written if you had had the time to think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, under the gun, or if you had not been on the set at that moment to see what what was going on. Uh, so, even the ad libs were in character. So, right. Um, and was was there like a? Because um, I know the book has that affair between uh, you know Brody's oh, wife no. and well, that was, it, was that a quick decision to cut that out, or did you guys oh, kind of uh, struggle with uh, that? The, the, first few decisions we made uh, were pruning all the undergrowth from the novel, the, the mafia okay. subplot, the real estate. Right. And when we got to casting Lorraine Gary and, and Richard Dreyfuss, mm -hmm. uh, one, of the, one of the joys of working on that movie was I was writing for actors whose voices I heard and whose personalities I knew. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I could write for them, and when you saw them, you couldn't imagine that she would be having an affair with him. You know, it, 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 it didn't make sense. Now, originally, the studio wanted Jan Michael Vincent to play the Hooper part. Oh, wow! Which would have been consistent with the novel. You know, right? The oceanographer is a hunk, and yeah, frustrated, frustrated sheriff's wife has an affair with him. But that was so far from any reality that we knew. <laughs> that we said no that's that's got to go that that is and it's just that's just misplaced right and no offense to richard dreyfus <laughs> no, no offense to me. And, and 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 when we started when i got to boston with steven mm -hmm. we only had roy scheider we did not yet have robert shaw and we did not oh. yet have richard dreyfus right and uh the script had gone to dreyfus and he had uh, rejected it he said famously, this is a movie I'd rather see than be in. Mm -hmm. So uh, Stephen was saying, geez, I, you know, I'd, I'd really like to get Richard. And because I had a prior relationship with Ricky, as I knew him, I mm -hmm. called my wife in L.A. I said, Do you, can you find out where Richard is right now at this moment? Mm -hmm. And she called back. You know, she's a, she's a real efficient movie and theater person mm -hmm. herself. So yeah. she called me in Boston and said, you're, luck. you're in luck. He's promoting Dirty Kravitz, and he's in New York. He can take the shuttle right up to Boston. Right. So we, we said, oh, you know, we, agents talked to each other. And then the next day or two, Richard showed up at the hotel, dressed almost in the exact outfit that he wore in the movie. He had a Levi jacket, a scraggly beard, a watch cap, knit watch cap, and rimless glasses. Wow. He walked into the hotel room and Stephen said, "Don't change a thing. Keep those clothes. Don't because <laughs> you know he looked like the Hooper that we saw in the movie." Right. So we we talked him into doing the movie, and it was in that hotel room 
that we first found the gag about crushing the styrofoam cup. Oh my God. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. That's great. Yeah, we, were, we were in this hotel room. We were at the Holiday Inn in Boston because it was a cheap production. Zanuck and Brown, mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say, were stingy bastards. Mm -hmm. and, and they put us in the Holiday Inn. And room service at the Holiday Inn was styrofoam. Wow. So then, and of course, the hotel room was littered with styrofoam because we were ordering our meals in. And Stephen was interviewing actors, and I was mm -hmm. typing away. We had a two bedroom suite. I was in one bedroom with a typewriter. Stephen was in the other bedroom, and in the living room in the middle is where we would in, we would interview actors, like like Richard. Mm -hmm. And you know, Richard came in, looked exactly like the part. We started talking. We crushed a styrofoam cup, and we were talking about you know, crushing a can and then crushing a cup. And Stephen said, "Good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put that in the script." So <laughs> it up in the script, and it's a big laugh. Yeah. And. And, you know, and we we found stuff like that in, in the hotel. Wow. And he so he was going to like so Spielberg by the time that movie wrapped, like he basically he left, right? Like he was going to do uh, Close Encounters immediately after it. Did you guys yeah. hang around and like make sure it like smooth everything out, or was everything kind of done by that point? No, no. There was a year before between the time the film finished shooting and the time it came out. It, it was it wrapped sometime in September or October of seventy four. Mm -hmm. It didn't come out until June of 75. So there was like a right. six-month period where the film was being cut and edited and oh, so scored and all that stuff. Oh, okay. So he didn't leave early to do the other, to work on another film? No, no. He was he was uh, uh, still prepping Close Encounters. He was working with Paul Schrader at the time. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, we... Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to. I've had this happen to me on dates before, too. I know the drill. Uh, <laughs> okay, now now it's going to ring on my other phone. Fantastic. And then, then, I, then I have to answer it. Oh, here it is. Right. <laughs> is this a whole bit you do where you have like 16 other phones by your desk? <laughs> yeah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, I'm in the middle of an uh, interview on television on the cable. So can I call you right back? Oh, sure. Tell everybody I said hi out there, TV land. Okay. Hi. <laughs> hi. What's hi. the What's the name of the show we're on? It's called Dystopia Tonight with John Dystopia. Poveromo. Me. Dystopia Tonight with John Poveromo. Yes. And it's on. Hi. Guys. Um, hi. Okay, Give her the link. Tell her to come on. <laughs> One of my oldest and dearest friends who I met on Jaws 3D. Fantastic. When? At what point during the show is Spielberg going to be calling? What's that? I said, at what point during the show is Spielberg going to be calling? <laughs> uh, no, we don't. We don't talk anymore. You don't? Why? What happened? Well, you know, he became Steven Spielberg. You know, I mean, this. There's an arc in show business where you become a, you become rich and famous, right? And your friends find it hard to keep up with you. They like you want if you want to drop everything and go skiing in Aspen and take a private jet, your friends can't afford to do that, so you have to take them. Yeah, 
And you should. And and pretty soon, your friends stop even reaching for the check. They just assume you're going to pay it. Uh, and then comes a point in your life where your friends, you know, they don't want to hang out because they're embarrassed because they can't keep up. They don't have a private jet. They don't have access to what you have access to. Right. So they start to fall away. And then if you're Steven Spielberg or Tom Hanks or anybody else, mm -hmm. the only, for, for a, a brief period in your life, and if you, uh, the only people you talk to are people you pay. Your right. Your, your, you know, your, your, your trainer, your, 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 your agent, you know, you just, mm -hmm. everybody is employed. Everybody depends on you for their living. Right. So some people will be frank and tell you, uh, you know, not, not make varnish stuff. They, they, they won't blow smoke up your ass and say you're the greatest. But when it boils down to it, eventually they reach a point where they can either tell you something that's going to cost them their job or they'll just keep quiet. And at right. that point, they keep quiet. So you don't hear some of the things you should be hearing from your friends, but you don't have any close friends at that point. Yeah, then, and that's how you wind up being Kanye West, divorcing your hot wife and uh, smoking yeah. weed out in a yurt in the middle of the desert. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and, and if, if you're not smart or if you don't have a support structure in place, uh, things can, you know, you can spin out of control and never come back. Or if you're lucky, you know, in, in, in Tom Hanks had a loyal and supportive spouse, Rita Wilson, and they, they got along just fine, and and, uh, uh, and he could hang out, and Tom could hang out with Spielberg because they both could afford a big yacht of their own, you know. Yeah. So It is it is kind of weird, that celebrity culture, where, like, you, you wonder why certain celebrities, yeah, somebody said you either keep up your moocher. Like, yeah. but, like, it's, like, um... Like in the improv back in the day, like where like because Bud Friedman would have people coming in all the time, I guess. And you yeah. couldn't sit celebrities with, you know, real people. So it would be like this eclectic table of people who've never, you know, like, you know, uh, Stallone, uh, you know, Bette Midler, you know, and Elaine Strick. You know what I mean? Like people yeah. you wouldn't think, hang out, but they're all rich and they're all on a different. So they have to. <laughs> it's like almost like forced play dates for the wealthy, yeah. which I'm not boohooing. I mean, that's great. Yeah. But. No, no, it, it, uh, uh, there's a reason why you know stars hang out with other stars. It's just it's right. Just, it's just easier. Well, you and I can hang out, right? We're not that far sure, apart, no, are we? We're, 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 we're not fantastic. I don't have a yacht, so we can totally go and get an Uber and go grab a burger somewhere. Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So do you, who are your, I want to get, get more about you and stuff like that too. So do you, did you have uh, more writing heroes when you were coming up or were they all comedians? Cause you, you do do stand up, right? No, I never did per se. I never did stand up. You I never did. In, okay. I, I only worked in the committee and I was a, I was a great improviser. If I do mm -hmm. say so myself, I was a good yeah. improviser and I was in a good company and we did a movie. We, you know, we did a lot of stuff together and I got a lot of mm -hmm. jobs from working in the committee from people who saw me and were impressed by my quick wit right. improvisation. If you say it, you wrote it, you know, so sure. people are looking for writers are going to look for people on an improvisational stage who are articulate and funny. And, all, mm -hmm. and I, I happened to be those things at the time. So I would get, I would get those jobs. Um, 
so Did you 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 just you went, you know, you basically went from one thing to, well, I did, I just went from one thing to another. I just happened to be hanging out with people who were talented and gifted. And, right. You know, uh, to the point you, where you know, if, I, if I was a Jeopardy category, it would be his hits begin with a J. <laughs> you know, right. You know, both, both are the AFI, AFI top 100 movies of all time. Jaws is number two horror film after Psycho. Mm-hmm. And uh, the jerk, I think, is forty-five or so. Yeah, the They're jerk both. is phenomenal. That was yeah. so. It was like so. You knew Steve coming up. So who were your like comedy heroes when you were growing up? When you were like coming into the business? Anybody that you like uh, looked up to or got to work with that you were like actually starstruck or? Well, I was. I was never star. I, I tried not to be starstruck. I mean, I was too cool to be starstruck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but when I was coming up, I mean, when I when I was a kid. I watched your show of shows and, you know, Sid Caesar, Imogene Coker, mm -hmm. Carl Weiner, Howard Mars, you know, that, that ensemble company and that ensemble writer's room, you know, that was the best there was in the world. And I, right. I aspired to that. I, you know, I wanted, if I was going to be in show business, I wanted to be like that. Right. Was it uh, cool when you got to work with Carl on the jerk? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, but, but by the time we got to the jerk, I knew Carl, uh, I had acted in uh, Oh God, which is a movie of Carl directed right. John Denver. John Denver is the best. Yeah, I love John Denver. If you go, if you watch Oh God, there's mm -hmm. a courtroom scene. Yes. And the camera pans the courtroom slowly, and it lingers on me in the courtroom as a spectator. Okay. And it's kind of an unnatural shot because there's no reason for the camera to linger on me, except mm -hmm. in the original script. My character was in the courtroom and then has some scenes with John Denver and Terry Garr afterwards, but those scenes were cut. So all that you're left with is the slow shot establishing Carl for no purpose. That's hilarious. <laughs> I remember that thinking like, what the hell has happened? So you, you got to do scenes with John Denver and Terry Garr anyway, though, right? Yeah, well, I knew Terry... Terry was the actress everyone loved. Forever. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I met her in the sixties when she was. As a matter of fact, I think Fred Roos, who was a famous casting director, who was managing Terry at the time. Right. In sixty-seven, I was in L.A. doing a pilot. I was staying in a hotel in the Sunset Strip. Mm. And Fred Roos called and said, "I'm with a young lady who's having." Was having a birthday and she'd like to smoke a joint and I don't have I don't smoke. Do you have any? Do you have anything? I said yes, I do. So in comes Terry Gar on her twenty first birthday, mm -hmm. and we went. We smoked a joint and went to the whiskey. Nice. And heard heard some band or another, and I was in love ever since. Wow! Did you guys ever? Did you guys date for a while? We never dated. We were friends, and I, 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 okay. I would spend as whatever time I could spend with her. I mean, I, she was shooting a movie in Portugal when I was in Europe, so I oh, went. Wow. We went to the set, visited. I, you know, we would, we toured uh, Portugal together. We 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 hung out at all, all the chances we got. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, she's she's quite ill now. She's so. hilarious. She's like the I. I mean, the only other per, other person I've seen that's. Uh, 
kind of reminds me of Terry Gar as Lisa Kudrow. Yeah. Who, uh, who and Terry Gar. No, Terry played her mother. Played her mother in the thing, which is hilarious because that was yeah, like perfect. That was pitch perfect. You got to see actually where it came, where it came from. Exactly. Yeah. And she, it was so funny because I think Lisa did an interview and she was like, I stole so much from you. And Terry Gar was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was, uh, uh, Terry Gar, um, I had I had a thought here, but it's it's eluding me. It'll come back. Okay. Talk. So when you were when you were yeah, if you will come back to it. So uh, I'm going to ask you about John Denver because I'm a huge John Denver fan too. Did you get to do so much with him, or was well, it just like a one off and that's it? It was just a one off, and then he died. And then he. <laughs> and they connected you two ever since, though. By the way, you're on the suspect list. <laughs> They saw you hanging around that plane. He, he, he flew his plane into the ground. Yeah, no, I know. I know. That's terrible. Thanks for bringing the show down. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's crazy. But that that's awesome. See, I didn't like it. It's it's weird because like your your whole trajectory, like you said, you just kind of went from one thing to another. So it's like you very rarely get to talk to somebody who was like, yeah, no, no missteps. Like, is there anything that you would say that you uh, turned down that you wish you hadn't? Or did you really just kind of. There's only like, one vision that I even think about. Right. In 72, 73. Mm -hmm. No, 70, well, 70, 70, 71. Let, let me wait. Let me think for a second. Sure. I had finished Jaws. I, I had to keep working. So between the time we wrapped Jaws, I went to work. I did four Flip Wilson specials on NBC. Mm -hmm. And the first special was produced by Lauren Michaels. So this would have been 70, wow. 71, 72, 71. And uh, no, I, I'm getting the chronology wrong. But the, the decision was Lauren Michaels asked me to come on, come with him to New York. Mm -hmm to do this new live show that he was going to debut. Mm -hmm. He was going to be the producer of. And we had spent some time talking about what we would do if we had our own show. You know? Okay. Because I was, I had come, we both came from network television. He came from Canada. Right. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, I had done uh, Smothers and, and Odd Couple. Uh, yeah. And I had done comedy specials. So, uh, we had a shared background, and he said, "You know, come to New York. We'll get a job for Allison, my wife, my mm -hmm. wife. And uh, and I thought I thought long and hard, you know. And, and then and, I, and by that time, I think Jaws was in the can, but hadn't come out yet. Okay. So I uh, so I and I just I talked about it with Allison. Do we want to go to New York? And I, and then I opted not to go to New York because I, I had a movie career going. And in those days, there was only movies and television, and everybody in television wanted to be in movies. Right. And everybody in movies wanted to be in rock and roll, and everybody in rock and roll wanted to be in the movies. Right. But uh, so so uh, I thought long and hard about it. I said, no, nah, you know, I got a career going in features here in L.A., I'm going to be doing a Richard Pryor movie, mm -hmm. so I'll I'll wait it out. 
in the meantime, Chevy came to LA. I, I acted in Chevy's first network special because he left wow. Saturday night. He left Saturday night after the second year, first year. Yeah. And then he came to LA and I acted in his TV special. Wow. And uh, uh, then in 75, when Gene Dumanian came in, they, the whole cast, you know, their five year, all their options were up. Uh, they, the the show, uh, all those people, Belushi, Aykroyd, I, I knew Lorraine Newman, uh, and I had met oh, Belushi nice. as a result of being on the show. Nice. So I so all those people came to L.A. to seek their fortune, and I was already here doing film. So right. you know, uh, uh, I didn't. As it turns out, I did not regret going to New York. And it would have been the Herb Sargent job. I would have been head writer. I would have been the older, experienced comedy writer. Oh man! Or the the the, the the staff. Right. So I would have been in the writers' room in that first five years with all those guys, uh, and, and it would have been and it would have been the best of all possible worlds because if you were in New York the first five years of Saturday Night, yeah, you were a national hit. You know, on television, which meant you could bump, get bumped up to first class and right know, all the perks of, of, of national media stardom, mm -hmm. and you were in a show that was the hottest ticket on on Broadway. There's only 150 seats in Studio 30, and right. it was a hugely in-demand ticket. So you had the best of being on the Broadway hit and the national television hit. So wow. it was great for that company, and and I I, I managed to, I did the show. Let's see. I wrote a sketch that was filmed for the show, and then I acted in some of Albert Brooks's little movies that he did. He's been out, yeah. I did. I appeared in one or two of those. So, and and then whenever whenever I was in New York, we'd go and we'd go, we'd watch a taping and hang out. You know, go hang out at Thirty Rock, right? See all all the gang. So that's incredible. So, so you could, I, we had uh, a quite. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, what was the question? I, Oh, we had a, qu a question from Courtney. Uh, a question right. for later if you have time. Anything current that you really like? I feel like filmmakers keep referencing the past, especially the 80s. Good point. Yeah, well, um, I mean, there's a natural tendency when you get older to, you know, enjoy what you know. and, and uh, Right. And, and I, I must say that of the new things, there's very few actors or films that I'm taken by anymore. I mean, I, mm. I, I, maybe I'm old and jaded. Maybe I'm just you know, tired. But I go, yeah, I've seen that before. I've seen that before. I've seen that before. Yeah. And when I look at the like Gold Globe nominations and, and uh, uh, Grammys and uh, uh, the TV Academy stuff, half the people I don't even recognize, you know. Yeah. I, I am not such a media junkie that I that I keep on top of everybody who's on the air, so yeah, I don't I'm watching these people. Uh, but every now and then you stumble on someone, and you oh wait you no know, this this person is really good. I mean mm -hmm. I, I went I, I was in New York. I have a place in New York. I went into a neighborhood nightclub on the Upper West Side. And I had the good fortune to stumble on Patton Oswalt doing one of his first sets in public. Oh wow, yeah, he's phenomenal. Patton's a yeah. Patton's hilarious, good guy. So 
yeah, we became friends, and, and I, I've known him ever since. Wow. But, but I, you know, but I knew him when. And, yeah. And every now and then, you run across an act. You go, okay, this person's going to be somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, stay friends with this one. Uh, and he's doing a lot of great stuff. I mean, he's been he's been doing great, great stuff, but he's been getting into the into movies and stuff like that and voiceover work and. Oh yeah, no, Pat, Patton's a Patton's a genius. Yeah, he's phenomenal. And a really, really nice person too, which is just a bonus in that, you know, in this industry. Um, yeah. that's that's so cool though. Uh, so yeah, there's like there's nothing. Would you ever write like uh like a superhero movie? What do you think of those? And you're talking to a nerd, but it's fine. Would you ever write like a superhero? Like if Marvel tapped you, would you do it? No, I really, do, I do have a script that I wrote that I can't find a buyer for, but it's a big tentpole. Mm -hmm. All-star movie that requires like five movie stars. I mean, the casting, wow. the casting would be, uh, you know, Russell Crowe, Jennifer Garner, Jima mm -hmm. Ansu, uh, you know, Lou Gossett. Uh, wow. Uh, uh, Meryl Streep. I mean, it would, it would be a. It's a real big movie. Right. Uh, so I, I, you know, I despair that one. I don't think will ever get made. Let's make it. Let's just do it. <laughs> <laughs> we got time. It's COVID. No one's doing anything. It's called Privateers. It's, it's a oh, modern nice. day private pirate film. And I wrote it before Captain Phillips. Oh, wow. Okay. I knew about Somali pirates before anybody. I researched <laughs> it. I wrote about pirates. I feel like this is where you come out and tell me you're a Somali pirate and I get an exclusive <laughs> on this show. You just whip out the hat. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Well, listen, this has been, it's been an hour. I don't want to keep you any more, any longer than when I told you I was, uh, we can talk a little while longer. Uh, that's fine. Bye. I, 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 I have an eight o'clock. You do too. Okay, great. All right. You have an eight <laughs> o'clock. I've got, um, Bobby Slayton said to say hi, by the way. Oh yeah. I like Bobby. Yeah. He's a good guy. He's coming on. Uh, I'm doing a special with him at 10 o'clock. So oh, if you're free at, uh, whenever, whenever 10 o'clock is it say it's seven o'clock for you. If you want to say hi, that's fine by me. No, just tell them hi for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't have that kind of time. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. So you, so are you, so is that the last uh, privateers was the, uh, your last project you were working on? Are you working on anything now? No, I, every year I get, I mean, I don't get my quote anymore. God knows I don't get, you know, six figures for a script anymore. Right. But every, every year or so I get hired to write a script and then, you know, nothing happened. We did. The financing falls through, or yeah. Do you prefer the, the TV or the movie? Uh, movies. My, I, I write movies. I don't write. Yeah, you write movies. You're not a big fan of the television stuff. It's hard. There's nothing really. I mean, I know it's cliche to say there's nothing good on TV, but like, I don't think there's been a really good sitcom or anything like that that's come out in like the last I don't know ten years. It's a bummer. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. And it's you know what's crazy too is like I feel like what happens is is like. Again, this is gonna. You're, you think you're doing the, uh, the, you know, the old man thing over here. I'm not even. I'm 36 and I'm doing it because it's like, uh, it's hard. I feel like it's hard for people to write situation comedies when you have a generation that's never really been in any situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. if they're always doing the digital shit, you know what I mean, and they're too afraid to go outside or do whatever. It's hard. How could you? How could you have any experience to know what to write? Yeah, I you know the. Uh... You know, Chuck Lorre can't write everything. Uh, <laughs> That's true. He is do he's doing phenomenally well. Nobody oh, else is. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and they try to bring stuff back. That's what they're doing too. Now they're bringing back all these old sitcoms. Like if they add, like, is there, are there any of the reboots that you've seen that have kind of blown you away? Or do you stay away from that? I, I mean, you know, if, if, if you watch the original, um, everybody loves Raymond. Yeah. Well, for well, Peter Boyle's dead for one thing. Oh, but, well, but you, you know, you, if, if you watch the re remake of something, even if it's got the same actors, I mean, they're, you know, they're 30 years older than they were. In right. Run. You know, and they're, they're not, they're not so credible anymore. Or if no. they are credible, you know, they, they bring the baggage of their previous exposure in the role. So it, it, yeah. it's, uh, there's only two that I've seen that, that seem to get the idea that the characters were supposed to have aged in some respect. Like they weren't supposed to be stuck in the same. And it was, um, Roseanne before they they booted her out of the thing, yeah, and you know before she did whatever that show came back and didn't miss a fucking beat. Right. I mean, Goodman, uh, Laurie Metcalf, they're both brilliant, obviously, but like yeah. even like Sarah Gilbert, Johnny Galecki, like all those guys that came back in, and even Roseanne, they were in step. Whoever they had, like the the writers that they had for that knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And um, and uh, Paul Paul Reiser's show, uh, Mad About You, when they rebooted that, they changed the like they aged. They they had their own thing and you know every all the characters seemed to develop the way they were supposed to over the years, yeah. And then everyone else is like, no, yeah. There's that, that, that weird you know television limbo where it's always 1978, right? I don't know why they all if they all want to come back they should do it in one giant spell. Like I would because like growing up like for me like it was crazy when you think about like I mean I got into stand-up eventually because well robin williams like one of my favorite comics of all time i bummed i never got to meet him but like um there was like a a period in time where like he was doing i was a kid so he did fern gully he did the bat the voice of the bat and that and then the genie and aladdin and then i saw mork and mindy reruns and then i finally started to be like well who, who the hell is this guy and then i found that he was a comedian and then literally found out everybody i liked and thought was funny Somebody said, like, Bob Saget trying to be wholesome again after we all found out he just stand up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can't go back to that. Um, but it was, it, like, it's crazy. Like, I, everybody that was, when I was growing up, who had a show was a comedian. Drew Carey, Brett Butler, well, Roseanne, was, Tim Allen. That was the career truck. <clears throat> right. You did well as a, as a stand-up, and then you got your own show. And yeah. Was, uh, uh, when they were looking around for, for leads for television show, a successful stand-up was something that the network executives could understand because they could right. they could see them in the clubs or in the, in the theater, and they go, "Okay, this person can do a show." So that was the standard career track. You got a hit, so you got you got ten minutes of dynamite material, mm -hmm. and then, you got a, then you got a TV pilot, and then if the pilot sold, you got your own show, and then you were Ray Romano or Brett Butler. Or, any one of them, you know, right? Those many, many people. They were like college degrees. Like you got a TV, a pilot handed to you after you graduated from yeah. stand up for so long. Yeah. And now they don't do. I mean, you if you, if you don't have like a million over a million followers on TikTok, you don't get shit. Like there's no, you know, nobody nobody's developing anybody anymore either. That's the, I don't. I like how this turned into two people complaining. It was just me complaining, really. But <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's crazy. I mean, the, everything's kind of changed. You know, so much even now. So it's it's kind of weird to find a everybody's hitting their mark or finding their niche somewhere else. Unfortunately, and not uh, and there, you know, nobody's 
writing to Esquire and then buying a motorcycle and then heading out west like a you're you're that beginning that whole tale was like a dream like I saw it in the beginning of an opening of a movie. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I love that experience. I, I I had a passenger as far as St. Louis. Uh, a hitchhiker? No, uh, no, no. It was somebody I knew in New York. So oh, I was. I, I'm going to St. Louis. I'm going to to see my parents. Can I ride with you? I said sure. Oh, okay. We did. Then I stayed in St. Louis a day or two, and then I continued on solo. And somewhere out in Nebraska or Kansas, somewhere in the middle of the country, I ran out of gas. <laughs> and then I, I said, "Oh fuck! I'm in the middle of really nowhere." I mean, yeah, I remember. I did pass a gas station. 15 miles back, and I don't know when the next gas station is going forward. Holy shit. This is 1966, I think. Uh, yeah, no cell phones. No cell phones. Uh, but then I looked, I realized, wait a second, I've got a, li a little U-Haul trailer hooked onto this car. Mm -hmm. My motorcycle is on the U-Haul. <laughs> okay, I'll take the motorcycle off the U-Haul. Mm-hmm kick it over, drive back, get a can of gas, come back, put it in my car, return the gas can, and keep going. So I did. It was wow. like having a life raft. It was like having a lifeboat. Yeah. So I... I, I that, Courtney... That was, that was... I felt very resourceful. Yeah. Courtney said you're a badass, dude. That is a very badass thing to have. It's just a yeah. backup, a backup motorcycle to kick around on. That's fucking incredible. <laughs> Did you have a, a leather jacket and everything too? Yeah, I did. I had a leather jacket. I, I'm gonna write the story of your life and then pitch uh, it, and then we'll figure. Who would you want to play you? I thought about that. Probably Seth Rogen or uh, Ooh. Uh, Seth Rogen, most likely. Yeah, and uh, jo or Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill would be great too. Those guys, they, they've got it. They had a good thing for a while where their yeah. movies were killing it. Every yeah, movie they put out was hilarious. When I, when I was thinking of my, you know, the, the Carl Gottlieb story, I said, oh, yeah, Seth Rogen or Jonah Hill as as me, Andy Samberg as Steven Spielberg, uh, <laughs> Kathy Bates as uh, Verda Fields. Mm -hmm. uh, wow, that'd be great. Yeah. Who do you, do, are you still hooked into all that? Like, is there people that you still go out with? I mean, before, you know, in the before times, like, were there were there uh, uh, comics and people and events that you still went out to see? Oh yeah, no. I mean, when I, when I was active uh, in writing, mm -hmm. I would you know I, I used to go go out to clubs all the time. Nice. And you know I'd like try to make a practice of seeing whoever was hot and new. I would uh, <clears throat> the doorman down at the improv. Uh, and at the uh, comedy store, they kind of knew me, so they would kind of let me in without paying. Yeah. <clears throat> so I could just go in and watch whatever, whoever was on. And if I saw somebody spectacular, I go, whoa. Yeah. That's, that's somebody worth keeping track of. Comedy store is the best place to hang out. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, saw, I saw almost all the comics coming up. Mm -hmm. I mean... In the seventies, not now. In the seventies, yeah, yeah. I like how I like, I like the idea that you have seen them now, though. Like you've always been there. <laughs> You're just wandering the halls. No, that's awesome, dude. I I have to actually. Uh, I've got ten minutes before Slayton comes on, so uh, I'm gonna 
I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so, so much for doing this. You have no idea how much this means to me. It was uh, lovely to talk to you. Um, and uh, I hope we get to do it again. I feel like you're just filled with stories. I could sit here and ask you all night. That's true. Uh, but I, <laughs> he's like, you could, I won't let you, but you could. Um, well, depending on my time and my schedule, if you want to do it again, I'm, I'm open. Yeah, I'd love to. I got more questions for you, man. So let's, uh, let's definitely do it again. We'll do a part two. All right. I'll uh, click on leave studio. Okay. <laughs> Don't tell the viewers how it's done. It's all magic. Uh. You live here now. That's not. <laughs> Let me see what happens to the screen. <laughs> he left. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in and watching. Um. Tokyo tonight.